You're listening to Notes from Norwich. I haven't looked at the stats lately to see if people are actually listening to this, but that's all right. Curious. Anyway, welcome to episode 11 of Notes from Norwich, our devotional dive into the revelations of divine love from Dame Julian of Norwich. My name's Chris, and I am here with you two. Who's going first with an introduction? I'm JN. And I'm Marguerite. Hello. to th- How are the two of you doing? We're pretty well. Yeah. We are. Good. We're great. Good. And we have a cat joining us on Marguerite's end. Oh. I don't have any pets. You've, you've each got pets. I don't have pets at the moment. I thought you did. No, I used to have a, a cat named Brando. Brando got sick when we lived in Kentucky. And uh, You do seem like a cat guy. Yeah. Brendo is a Norwegian forest cat, so he's like 20 pounds oh, of, of muscular friendliness. I think he thought he was F- a dog. FD Nordic fellow. Yeah, with huge <laughs> paws. Um, but yeah, so he he got FIV, and, uh, oh. and we just have never gotten a, a, a replacement. <laughs> we've, just, uh, we, we've just, yeah, never gotten a, another cat. But, you know, one day, maybe we'll see. Until then, I have my prayer. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the, if the legends of Julian are uh, to be believed, the two go hand in hand. Cats and contemplative The, the cats life. and prayer, yeah. But can, you know. can dogs and the contemplative life go hand in hand, or is that a different kind of... In my experience, they're not going great together. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. I will. I will say my contemplative practice has has suffered since adopting a dog. Oh, but that might be because the dog is a heathen. Oh well, <laughs> you never know where the Holy Spirit will blow. Oh, anyway, um, th- this has been a contemplative pet hour. With <laughs> no, we're we're in episode eleven of Notes from Norwich. We're looking at chapters twenty four, twenty five. And maybe 26, we'll see how far we get. Um, And then with a glad expression, our Lord looked into his wounded side and gazed with joy. Oh, I love this. What do you love about it? (laughs) Um, The side wound is a sort of devotion that I never thought would speak to me. Um, But the more I've um, delved into the sort of way that this imagery troubles boundaries, um, especially around gender and um, the role of Christ in creation and our understanding of ecclesiology. Um, Those three like areas I have found rich fodder for exploring them in this devotion to the side wound kind of you know because um so the side wound is i think pretty transparently to many fairly yonic it's like the vulna vulva uh kind of play is very much there and so this this concept of it being the opening into christ's womb um has been powerful for me 
in thinking about the generative aspect of the son, uh, the son, the Christ as mother, Christ as um, Christ as full and equal participant in our creation uh, has been big. I, I grew up with this sort of Christology where kind of Christ steps into the breach to protect us from the father who created us and wants to punish us. And there's very little linking Christ, the, the word with the act of creation. Um, and exploring the side wound has helped me think about Christ, Christ as mother, but Christ as an integral part of birthing forth the world, birthing forth creation and birthing forth us, his church from the cross. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of rich symbolism I see in, in this kind of, this gaze, Christ looking into his wounded side. There's just, there's so much there. He's looking into his side with Julian. They're looking in together. And that is a, that's quite a thing. There's room for everyone, she says, which ties into the creation piece that you mentioned. The other thing is, biblically, there really is no reason for that soldier to have pierced him. He was determined to have to be dead at the time i mean there's there was a reason for them to want to be able to take the crucified ones down but to pierce him it's almost as if that was a whim on the part of the soldier and that just makes it seem very um meaningful i mean it just nothing happens accidentally in scripture and nothing is wasted but this here's this Here's the soldier just out of the blue deciding to pierce Christ, to wound Christ in the side, and all the blood and water comes out. And it 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 has to have it has to have enormous meaning to me for that for that to have happened. For that to be part of the to for that to be part of the story. So I was thinking about a wound and what is in fact, a wound, what makes something a wound. And it's not just cutting your finger when you're, you know, chopping onions. It's, I mean, a wound is, I mean, have I even known anyone who was wounded, physically wounded? I don't think I have. I mean, a wound is, is something that is inflicted on you from outside and is damaging and reveals your inside in a way that something simple wouldn't do. I mean, some, some simple injury, it's different from an injury. You can be in a car crash and be injured and be badly injured, but not wounded. So just the, just the idea of a wound and then to have the wound become so beautiful and so holy and so welcoming and so warm and wonderful. Uh, 
I love that distinction between injury and wound um, because I think it does um, it does uh, capture some of the uh, the violence. I mean, injury is, of course, violent in an abstract sense, but that this is this this wound out of out, out of which we were born into which we can come to rest in peace and love this is something that was actively inflicted this is part of the sufferings this is part of christ's bearing the brunt of the sin um that that that's how this wound comes into being and that distinction you drew between wound and injury helps that jump out into focus and doesn't Nicodemus say, you know, what am I supposed to go back into the womb? Yes. <laughs> Julian would, oh, as it, so that occurred to me too. I can just picture Julian as a fly on the wall when Nicodemus is there, just like smiling and nodding vigorously, like, yes, you are actually supposed to climb back into the womb. <laughs> I have this icon um, that I commissioned. I got it uh, finally about two weeks ago or so. It shows Christ on the cross and um, the Theotokos, his mother, being born as an infant out of the side wound. Um, Sure. To to try to capture that um, aspect of this being where the church is born from. Mm -hmm. That that the church is born out of this, out of this wounding in the passion. Absolutely. Um, and out of this wound, we issue forth in the icon, in the person of our mother, the blessed Virgin, like that, that is where we are born. Um, it's mm-hmm. yeah. It ties right back to Nicodemus being born of water and spirit. There's not just the blood. There is the water that issues from the side. We're called to climb back into the womb and be born out again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then we move to his blessed heart cloven in two. Oh. We just, those of us who... Uh, you know, there are different calendars available in Christianity. And for some of us, uh, last Friday was the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, which is a devotion that for years to me seemed very saccharine and very sentimental. And I think that was just because. A lot of the depictions, you know, so I grew up in the outskirts of Boston in a very Catholic town. And so there was a lot of, um, frankly, very cheap and chintzy Catholic art, uh, quote, Catholic quote art. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of Jesus with a lot of rouge on his cheeks looking very pink and, and white, um, kind of surrounded by uh, pastel clouds, that kind of art. 
with you know the sacred heart all over it and i just thought it's, 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 there's something saccharine something very sentimental about it but it's grown on me since i actually started reading some um some reflections on it and you know kind of once you get past the bad art that's out there there's a lot of like raw power behind it um, can you share some of that because i it's no. it is something that uh, no i mean i just it is something that i have um i will vigorously defend people's right to mark and enjoy and grow from this devotion, but it is something that it doesn't click. I, 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 what was that? It doesn't click with you. It doesn't click. Yeah. And I think partly because of the Catholic kitsch. Yeah. It's, it's di- I can recognize that there is this profound power in it, but it hasn't clicked for me. Yeah. Um, and I can't, yeah. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't point you to, oh, so and so's writings. But the, the thing that I think has grabbed me over the years is the idea that. So it joins together the intensity of the reality that if Jesus is God and God is love, then Jesus is, in his being, love. And if Jesus is God incarnate, then within his body is somehow the concentration of the entire love of the universe. Mm. And if we take the incarnation and the doctrine that God is love seriously, then then there was a point on earth at which the like the love of all creation was concentrated in a single focal point which is mm. you know metaphorically sure but but also you know he had a heart um and that there's, there's just something i think you know if there's a dominant theme to to all three of these chapters is that there's that it seems as though Jesus is drawing our attention to different meditative focal points of of devotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say more about that in a little bit, because you both went, mm-hmm, or, hmm. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but so the Sacred Heart, I think, is one of those things that, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of a lot of things you can do with God. There's a lot of different approaches into Jesus or the Trinity or you know the richness of all of Christianity. But one of those ways in I'm discovering more and more every time it comes up in the year is this meditation on on the on the concentration of love in in time and space. Um, I mean, insofar as we call the heart, the seat of the emotions. And I say, my heart goes out to you and my heart is breaking when I'm very sad because of some loss. Um, insofar as we use the heart as a symbol for the totality of our human emotions and particularly our compassion for other people, then the more I reflect, and it's not for everyone, sure, but the more I reflect on the heart of Jesus and also of Mary, because the two of them kind of go hand in hand, the more, um, I don't know, just the, the it, it's helpful for me to remember the boundlessness of Jesus's love. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's because I kind of take it for granted, you know, like, you know, it is an article of our faith that Jesus loves us. But sometimes I have trouble remembering that Jesus loves me. Mm -hmm. And more than just kind of that being an article of my faith, that Jesus loves me. I'm worthy of that love. Yeah. And I think it's th- that's the thing that we so easily forget again and again. Anyway. Um but yeah, so that's the it's like the first thing that Jesus does is is look into his side and say, you know, let, let's meditate you and I, Julian and me together. Let's reflect on this vulnerability, this this symbol of sacrifice, this willingness to be wounded, this generativity and this yonic imagery, um, and it's tied together to birth giving. Um, all the different layers. And then let's reflect a little bit on my heart, the seat of my love. And then, you know, the next chapter, we'll get into it. And then let's reflect a little bit on Mary, who's both, you know, sort of, who's sort of an example of Jesus's love, the, the most sacred thing that he could, could show other than himself, but also the kind of the, the not like inwardly revolving cycle of love, Mary's love for Jesus, Jesus's love for her, Mary's and Jesus's love for um, everything else, mm-hmm. um, Julian's love for Mary. I mean, it's Jesus says, like, mm-hmm. you know, because Jesus knows her, Jesus knows how important it would be. So, yeah, there's just a lot and of the, these, like, the, yeah. moving from meditative focus to meditative focus. With the love being the central point, lo, how I love thee. Hmm. Um, yeah, these are different, the different frames, I think, for meditating on this love, meditating on this, the joy that we have seen um, Christ's redemptive work brings to him, and that he is asking us to be satisfied in, then these are lenses, frames, avenues into meditating on that love. Um, In chapter 24, uh, Julian describes God as saying, lo, how I love thee, as if he had said, and quote, my dear one, behold and see the Lord thy God, who is thy creator and thine endless joy. See, See thine own brother, thy savior, My child, behold and see what delight and bliss I have in thy salvation. And for my love, enjoy it now with me. So that's, that's how she takes this, this five word sentence, lo, how I love thee and takes that and uncoils it and helps us see everything that she's packing in there. Um, we have. Christ as our creator and endless joy that does capture this generativity, this, this Christ, Christ's role in, in our creation as being integral in the creation of the world. 
and of us. Um, Christ as brother, Christ as savior, and this delight and bliss um, that he has in this passion. And the final call is to enjoy it with him. That's, she, she coils that all up and puts it in this little, little phrase um, that I think she's then providing us with different avenues in to appreciate the wound, the cloven heart, and I think in a moment, the Blessed Virgin. I like that idea, Chris, yeah, of the meditative points. It's almost as if she's trying to provide us the tools to get to that satisfaction that Christ asks of us. Just last time, we talked about the chapter where, like, art thou well satisfied? And that that is the response, that is all that is asked of us, to be well satisfied in this gift that has been given. Um, but it almost feels that in these chapters, Julian is saying, here are, she doesn't lay it out in so many words. It's like, here are three practical steps that you can, you can take toward, to grow towards this satisfaction. But Chris, like you were saying, these, if these are points of meditation, then these are, this is her kind of laying out um, the, <laughs> the signs by which we can access this satisfaction. That it's, it, it feels almost like she's unpacking this, this vocation we have and saying, well, look, look, th- look at the ways that God has provided for us to understand this love and come to satisfaction in it. We have this, this womb in the side that we can climb into. We have the heart cloven in two. We have the blessed mother standing in for the church and in this never ending cycle of love. And Julian's sort of holding those out there for us. Say, okay, so Christ has asked you to be well satisfied in this. This is how you can start to get there, you know? Marguerite? This our good Lord showed us in order to make us glad and happy is how she ends is how she ends this chapter. Hmm. So I have a, a, a sermon that I haven't preached in years. Uh, and now you all know that sometimes I repeat my sermons. Uh, and <laughs> I, I do. You do. Um, I hope you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's because I only have one good one. So I have to keep using it over and over again. <laughs> no, but it's on, on the liturgical year. And it begins with this observation that we humans have an inability to focus at different scales with particularly great intensity. So we have this phrase that we use that you can't see the forest for the trees, right? So this, this idea that if your focus is on each individual tree, then you can't see the forest. And that's true. We just can't, like you can focus on the forest, 
You can focus on a tree. You can focus on one leaf on the tree. You can focus on what's going on in the cells on that leaf. But somehow our tiny little brains can't keep it all in uh, in the same level of attention and focus at the same time. And so we, we use this um, as one of the limited ways in which we struggle to understand how God can work. Like, how can God be paying attention to my life and be caring about me when God has the whole universe to take in, in mind? And, and so our standard answer is that, you know, well, God is God. God can pay attention to the galaxies and his eyes on the sparrow. God can do what we can't, but it's a recognition of our own limitation. We can focus on different scales of attention at once. And so it is with the life of Jesus. Like we, if I ask you to think about, meditate about, have a relationship with the whole of Jesus, we can't see the forest for the trees. We can't, we can't keep all, all the details of Jesus's life in in mind at the same time because there's too much of it because there's too much Jesus. So what the liturgical year does is break his life up into manageable bite-sized chunks so that we can spend a little bit of time focusing on Jesus the baby which tells us so much and then we can spend a little bit of time on Jesus beginning to be revealed to the gentiles into the wider world. And that tells us so much. And then we can begin to look into, you know, Jesus um, out in the desert contending with the devil. And that teaches us so much and, and onwards throughout his whole life. So we unfold his whole life over the course of a year, not because any one of those is more important than any of the others, because we're meant to integrate them somehow, but that's really hard to do. Imagine what a sermon would be like that preached in depth on every aspect of Jesus's life. I mean, not even Fulton Sheen could do that. Um, <laughs> although I, he, he'd give it a try. So I think, so what we have to do is when we reflect on who is Jesus, there can be no one single image or episode or answer to that. Like, come up with one image that sums up Jesus. Crucified on the cross is the closest we get. But that's not the whole story. Um, and I think what's happening between Jesus and Julian here is that Jesus is saying, you know, um, here are some examples of my love of my willingness to sacrifice, of my willingness to do whatever I have to do to reach you. And then he just kind of shows her these images. Look, here's this wound. Meditate on that for a while. Here's this heart. Meditate on that for a while. Here's Mary. Here's, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and like all great symbols... Uh, like the Eucharist, like baptism, like all the great mysteries of the church. Um, there's there's satisfyingly no one single right interpretation for any of it. We just dig in and dig in and dig in and find more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Should we turn to Our Lady? Christ asks, Dost thou wish to see her? And then follows it up, I know well thou wouldst see my blessed mother, for after myself she is the highest joy that I could show thee, and the most pleasure and honor to me, and she is most to be most desired to be seen by all my blessed creatures. Now, that's great and all. I personally have a very high Marian devotion, a great love for Mary, but the first thing that I want to point out in this is that Jesus is the, the heart of this showing is that Jesus understands not how important Mary is, but how important Mary is to Julian. Mm. This is like when you buy somebody, what am I going to get so-and-so for her birthday? Well, if you know her, you'll know what she really wants. And, you know, and that's, that's what gift giving is in theory all about, right? That, that it's an exchange of something that is a testimony to the understanding in the relationship. Like I'm going to get you something because I know it's important to you. If I get it, if I get it right. Um, that's the tricky thing about gift giving that we actually have to pay attention to, to other people. Um, so, Jesus understands that Julian that Julian has a great desire to see Mary because Julian has a great love of Mary. A lot of people did back in the 14th century. Mary was the entry point, I think, for a lot of people into the world of the divine because things were so hierarchical. You know, it had moved, it had shifted from Jesus being the good shepherd, the entry point into God to Jesus increasingly becoming, you know, uh, getting lots and lots of promotions. And then suddenly Jesus is the judge of the universe sitting on his throne of judgment. And so how are you going to bring your, your humble peasants appeal to the throne of grace? Well, you've got to rely on the saints to run your appeal, you know, up the chain of command because Jesus isn't going to grant you an audience. You're just a humble serf. And so you've got to have your your saints, and you've got to have Mary, who's a tender, motherly, feminine figure, who will take care of you and hopefully be able to talk Jesus into not being too stern while he considers your appeal. Now, I think that's a very medieval way of thinking, but of course it lingers in some areas today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've personally was, was, from what I've heard. Yeah. But I personally, you know, I didn't grow up in the church at all. So Mary was actually kind of, uh, the, the way I came into it all, but that's mm-hmm. a whole different story. So you see the point as being, um, Christ knowing that this is the, a great gift to give Julian less being about Mary and more being about Christ's gift to Julian. That's the first thing that I notice about it. Yeah. Mm. I actually Mm -hmm. don't think there's much about Mary herself in here. It's, I, I see first of all, that it's a great gift for Jesus to give to Julian. Like, I know this would be very meaningful to you. Mm. Here's Mary. Mm. Um, 
the second thing that I notice is um, that this is again Jesus wanting to show a, an example of his love because he wants to show uh, how much he loves Mary and how much she loves him and how they've kind of they've got this um, uh, what's the word for it? This uh, it's a requited love. It's a mutual love that is in essence, kind of an example of the way it's supposed to be between any human and Jesus. Um, and so the, so Mary becomes this kind of like exemplar. Um, and in particular, there's this bit at, at, about how she doesn't see Mary in her bodily presence, but in her virtues, she mm-hmm. really sees the examples of Mary's life. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to this uh, book that um, Gaventa, I think is her name, but it's Protestant Perspectives on Mary. What is it called? Um, I should have prepared this. On Mary, Blessed One, Protestant Perspectives on Mary, edited by Beverly Roberts Gaventa and Cynthia Rigby. There's an essay in there um, about how the primary difference between Mary for Protestants and Mary for Catholics is that for, um, for Catholics, Mary's primary value, her primary role is to be an exemplar of purity of of being uh, kind of the, the perfect woman in a sense but for Protestants and this is like the whole essay is like how can we encourage Protestants to develop a Protestant style devotion to Mary and the answer in this essay was to say that f- uh, for Protestants Mary can be seen as the ultimate disciple Protestants mm-hmm. are all about like discipleship, right? We want to find our own way. Um, uh, if you buy into the idea that Episcopalians are Protestants for a moment, I know that's debatable. Um, don't at me. Uh, but we're, we're trying to find our own discipleship, right? And so Mary does that really well. Like she finds her calling and mm-hmm. does what God has called her to do um, bravely, with great courage. Um, but so Julian now is shown not Mary's, you know, a, a picture of Mary, but Mary in her, um, in her virtues and her spiritual um, power. Anyway, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Mary is the first believer, the chief disciple. And also these, the three aspects, the three phases of Mary that is, that are shown to Julian are, so here, right at the end of chapter 25, uh, and her, he, Jesus showed three times the first as the first was as she conceived, 
The second was, as she was in her sorrows beneath the cross. The third was, as she is now in delight, honor, and joy. So those three phases, those three showings, are, they feel to me like a summary of the whole map of the Christian life. That it begins Mm -hmm. somewhere for baptism, for birth, for Jesus conceived at the Annunciation. Um, A moment of ultimate sorrow, which I think has to occur to all of us at some point. Our own death, any sort of loss, the death of our dreams. Contrition. Contrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third, as she is now in her delight, honor, and joy, the, you know, the resurrection that comes after it, which, um, so that's, that feels like this kind of sine wave movement of beginning, uh, hitting rock bottom and then rising beyond the, I guess the original potential even. I really do think there's a lot of merit in, um, reading Mary as sort of the archetype or template of the believer in 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 this sense that like those those three phases trace Mary's life and as you've pointed out can be seen as the template for the believer's life writ large um and i think the life of the church and um there is in the person of Mary i think a a point of meditation for thinking about our relationship with Christ um, with a special clarity where um, if we let Mary stand in for the church, stand in for the believer in this arc of traveling from the conception through the depths of sorrow into the radiance of heaven. Um, I think about it in terms of, I've I've been helping people learn how to pray the rosary. Um, That has been something that my parish has picked up a lot in COVID times because people are trying to figure out how to pray and they need tools. They've been asking for specific tools of prayer. Um, And so I've been teaching people the rosary and trying to explain the mysteries and the mysteries of the rosary follow this trajectory. It, t- it takes us from the Annunciation, the point of conception, to the crowning of the Queen of Heaven, who, which um, I, I encourage people to think in these typological terms, where Mary being crowned as the Queen of Heaven is, is a type of the Church, the Bride of Christ, being crowned as the as the crowning glory of creation um that that the 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 rosary is quote-unquote about mary um and i mean i've got a 
nosebleed high Marian devotion. Um, I'm not saying it's not about Mary, but I'm saying that like it, Mary is there as, um, as a way for us to enter into and help us understand our place in this story. Hmm. That, um, when we, uh, when we interact with Mary, when we pray the rosary, we are not just seeing these scenes. We're not seeing these, her in these scenes. We are seeing ourselves in her spot in these scenes. That it is, um, Mary is standing in for us. Mary is providing us a, a gateway for meditating on us being at the foot of the cross, us being at that moment of saying, yes, be it unto me according to your will. Us being raised up into heaven and seated in glory and cloth of gold at the wedding feast of the bank, uh, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. That as we, as we trace this trajectory of Mary's life, we are invited to kind of tag along, grab our mother's skirts and go along with her, stand in with her. She stands in the place of the church. She stands in for the church um, and provides us with this avenue of meditating on this action that God is performing, of raising up and transforming. So they're centered in Chicago. There's a, a relatively new... Uh, Christian community in the Episcopal Church called the Community of the Mother of Jesus. And they've got this thing. I'll put it in the show notes if you want to look at it. I've also copied it in the chat for the two of you if you want to see it. But they've got this thing called Mary's Way of Discipleship, which is 10 ways, and each way has three points in it. But it's the way of the – the first one, for instance, is the way of the Annunciation each day, make everything you do, think, or say a prayer to God so that you can become attentive to God's breaking into your day. In other words, that's what Mary was doing, according to the story, when the when Gabriel visited. Say often, I am your servant, O Lord, let it be done to me as you say, as you say, and practice the virtue of humility so that you can walk each day with God. And so they do this... Um, in ten different, uh, ten different ways, ten different episodes or snapshots of Mary from the Gospels that they've then turned into a model for kind of daily discipleship, and it sounds very similar to the way you're um, talking about, like using Mary as an interpretive lens for for our own. Uh, at least the beginning of our relationship to the gospel path. Um, anyway, so yeah, as usual, Mary gets asked to do a lot of stuff symbolically in this particular chapter. Um, Marguerite, do, do you? Well, this isn't, this isn't from, from Julian, but 
I often think of Mary as a, as a version of Abraham because Abraham was told to do something outrageous and dangerous and, and crazy. And he said, yes. And his, his agreement created created the the nation of Israel basically in in the people of the people of Israel, the Jews, he created them by his, you know, by, by him making his covenant and by saying yes. And Mary is the mother of the church. And she Mm. created that by saying yes. Mm. So, you know, so, I mean, I, I look at her in that way and what did, you know, what did Judaism do? Well, my goodness, it, it brought, it brought a, of course it brought forth Jesus, but it also, um, it, it drove monotheism. It brought the idea of living for God alone as something that was, was doable. I mean, obviously everybody failed at it, but I mean, we fail at what we do. And, and so the word of God was made possible through Abraham's yes to, to God. And the word of God is made possible through Mary's yes. And so I, that's, you know, and, and I, I suppose that's a fairly Protestant take on it. And, but that's where I'm at with it, with, with her role as being someone. And of course, we ourselves are supposed to say yes on a on a daily basis and bring forth you know and and proclaim the gospel using words if necessary so i will say i'm not sure that that's so protestant but yeah i think you're spot on i love the mary abraham uh parallel it's not original with me but it's it always uh it always speaks to me whenever i whenever i come across it because of the of just the craziness of his of his um consent and the craziness of her consent and what makes people what makes people say yes to god I preached a sermon a couple years ago on the Annunciation. Believe it or not, my rector asked me to preach on Mary, which just anyway. Um, and that was and that was kind of where it was. What does it take to what, what makes a person say yes? And half the time we we don't know what, why we say yes to things, or maybe I just don't know. Anyway, well, on to chapter twenty-six, where it's it's like s- something feels like everything is wrapped up here, at least for a moment, or it's uh, feels that way to me, as though like Jesus is showing Julian. See, here's a picture, here's an image, here's a thing to meditate on, here's Mary, and then finally, it's like. He takes the spotlight and swivels it around on his face and says, all this stuff that you want and all these emotions you're feeling and all this stuff that you imagine and everything that your heart thinks it desires, it's all me. <laughs> it's all mm-hmm. me. Every bit of it is me. 
rhetorically, it's wonderful. It is I. It is I. Just this. Uh, there's a, a relentlessness, almost like a heartbeat, um, in the in the way that she words it. It is I who am most exalted. It is I whom thou lovest. It is I whom thou enjoyest. It is I whom thou servest. It is I whom thou yearnest for. It is I whom thou desirest. It is I whom thou meanest. It is I who am all. It is I whom holy church ple- preaches and teaches thee. It is I who showed myself here to thee. The, uh, the, the rhythm of it having, having just like crawled inside Jesus' side and been meditating on his heart. It, it just, it just strikes a heartbeat kind of vibe for me. Um, that almost that this is, that this is the voice of, this is Christ's heart speaking to us. This is, we are, we are in Christ's breast with the heart cloven in two. And that heart is saying to us insistently, it is I, it is I, it is I that I am your heaven. Take me, choose me as your heaven, as she said. Um, it's a very powerful passage. It is, it is relentless. Um, it's, it's hypnotic. It's, it's wonderful. I agree. So the chap, and you get this, go. Oh, sorry. Go. You get the sense that it goes on way longer than she tells us, way longer than she recounts. The number of these words surpasses my wit and all my understanding and all my abilities, and it is a most high number as I see it. It just, that, that sentence brings to mind then, takes this, this paragraph of the, the beating of the, it is I, and helps me imagine it stretched out through time. Like this is a, the, 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 the relentlessness is truly overwhelming to her. That it, it repeats more times than she can fathom. And it reminds me of something that I'm going to look up quickly because I want to get it right. It's the very end of John's gospel. How many chapters does John have? 24? I'm not going to hazard a guess. Um, I should have that memorized. It is more than 17. I know that. 21. 21. Or 22. 21. All right. So I'll edit all this out to make me sound very clever. So the very end of this chapter 26, right? And therefore the words are not explained here, but every man according to the grace that God gives him in interpreting and loving, receive them in our Lord's meaning. So there's more words, but I'm not going to put them in here. You will know what you need to hear. In the very end of John's gospel, so this is chapter 21, verse 25, But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there are more words, but these words that you have in this gospel are enough to get you started. Um, 
So that popped into my mind at the very end of this. The very second line of the chapter, though, reminds me of a different famous writing. Uh, And after this, our Lord showed himself more glorified, as I see it, than I saw him before, in which I was taught that our soul shall never rest until it comes to him. Which just reminds me, maybe it reminds you of the famous line from uh, Augustine's Confessions about how our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Um, and this is so this is the whole first part of Augustine's Confessions where he's talking about how he searched everywhere for something. Some he searched for something that would fill that hole in his heart, in his life, in his soul. And then he finally realized that it was God he was searching for and um and our souls are made for that relationship. And they're not going to feel satisfied until they connect to Jesus. And who's Jesus? It is I. Everything. Mm. Mm. And then the third thing. Oh, Marguerite, no, go. go. The third thing. Uh, no, please. Well, okay. Okay. The third thing, that it is I whom thou, etc., etc. I also, as I was driving back from this thing that I did earlier today that I was telling you about earlier, it's very cryptic to you podcast listeners, um, <laughs> but I was listening to the audio book that I have of it, and I remembered a um, talking to a friend of mine who was, uh, you know, a couple of years into sobriety uh, about... Um, this is a couple of years ago, and he was um, telling me about the weird, like the how his consumption of alcohol was trying to fill a goal in his or a, a, a hole in his life that eventually was filled by God, and how it had taken him a little while to unwrap how something as evil as alcohol and as good as God could try to fill the whole, like the same hole space, the same space. Um, and he really like that messed him up quite a bit. Um, while he sorted through that. And what I think what made that pop into my mind was this, like this observation that everything that Jesus says, like everything that, Everything that you are looking for, whether you're looking for it in the wrong places, but it's Jesus that you're searching for. So, you know, those of you who are listening to this podcast who are searching for it in pornography or booze or, you know, arguing with people on the internet, which is my own uh, but I mean that uh, maybe we're maybe we're looking for Jesus, but we don't know it. Even those of us who think we have Jesus are probably still not entirely there. Mm-hmm. Marguerite, you were going to say something, and then 
Well, I was going to say that the words in this chapter, the the list <clears throat> reminded me of of a, of a litany of of the idea of a litany, and how, in a secular way, the word litany is usually used derisively to describe a long list that nobody wants to listen to, a long litany of complaints or boring litany of praise of you know some annoying person or something. But the idea for me of a litany is the way that these that these statements are given here is that it just it drives into you more and more and more in a repetitive way in such such a way that it that it's irresistible. And that's how that's how this seems to me. That it's, it's beyond the specific meanings of the words, as Julian uh, infers here in her final paragraph. The the words are wonderful, and they are they mean things to her. But it just it goes beyond even that. It's just the insistence of it, how it drives and drives and drives um, into you, and that's that's how. Uh, that's how litanies feel to me. And I'm, I'm a big litany fan. Mm. I love that. Chris, are you looking something up? Of course. Yeah. well so this is the i you know i have several translations this is one is college and walsh from the uh, classics of western spirituality and i was seeing if the litany that's in here is all that different not really but i am he i am he i am he who is highest i am he whom you love i am he in whom you delight i am he in whom you serve I am he for whom you long. I am he whom you desire. I am he whom you intend. Basically the same. But, yeah, I just wanted to see if it was different at all. So there's a lot to it. There's, there's, um, like, so when I'm reading things and it's, and I've been, I've been doing, as I've said in past episodes, I'm starting in on the spiritual exercises. Um, So I'm trying to work with this technique when I'm reading scripture and also the revelations here, where I try to, um, like I almost try to shoot the scene like it's film or theater or something. Mm -hmm. Because have I told you two this, that I, I used to do theater lighting and sound back in the day? back no i mean just with fringe theater yeah so um so yeah with this there would be like vignettes uh across a stage that i would just light up with pools of light you know with christ's side um and then the the heart and then mary and then finally this bright spotlight on Jesus, this like unflinching gaze into the face of Jesus uh, would be, that's how I would 
<laughs> stage these three chapters. So this is a final question that um, maybe you'll want to listen to. What? Yeah. What are you looking up for, Jan? Benji. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I right. a husband interruption. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were having a revelation from God or something. I wish. I wish. Um, <laughs> how do you know that God loves you? I don't know if that's something to answer in the podcast or if it's just something to meditate on. But so this is this these are ways that Jesus is showing to Julian his love, and it's something that I've been meditating on because it's something that I'm doing at this part in the spiritual exercises. How does God show me that I'm loved and cared for, and and so is the world? You know what what are the the many ways that God uh, is actively loving me, and how can I be better at noticing those, both in my own life and in the world around me? Because the, the supposition is God is constantly, actively, not just kind of holding you in some sentimental care, but actively showering on you all the things that are necessary for your well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so, we take so many of them for granted because it's been happening since the moment we came into existence. So we've just been like fish in water. Like the fish takes no notice of the water because it's the fish's context. Mm -hmm. But the more we become aware of the so many different ways that, that, God is actively working for our well-being. I mean, just the more the more gratitude grows naturally. Yeah. So what's one more way that we can look for the work of God uh in our lives? I wonder if that's our homework for the week. <laughs> I don't mean to give anyone homework. <laughs> That would be good homework. Um, speaking of the Ignatian exercises, the examen is a good as uh, a good tool for for that sort of thing to bringing to your mind what you're grateful for and how God acted in your day and how you reacted to that. I would be hard pressed to say how. God acts in my in my life and in my day because I am aware of it a lot. And I have worked on becoming aware of it a lot. There was a time in my life when I would have laughed at such an idea hmm. because there was a time in my life when God was quite abstract and far away and perhaps even indifferent, but that time has gone. And so, so I, I feel God's presence in my, in my life a lot in, in my day often, 
Yeah. Yeah. Was there something dramatic that caused or something? Well, yes, there was, as a matter of fact. Um, my sister died in, in 2012, and she um, lives in my hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I traveled there for her funeral. I had traveled there a couple times to be with her when she was ill. But anyway, I went back for several days for her funeral and, of course, saw lots and lots of relatives that I hadn't seen in a long, long time because I'm not really a traveler and I might not see again for a really long time. And the whole trip was so, so blissful, so incredibly deeply generous and spiritual and, and loving. And I didn't realize it until I came back and I just was thinking, why that? Why was it like that? Why was it like that? And then I realized that it was like that because God made it like that. Hmm. And so I ran, ran tearing off to my rector, my then rector and gave him the story and said, what do I do now? And he said, um, you should do the Ignatian exercises. And I did. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Sure. The exercises were um, a good practice, a good exercise in this discipline of seeing that God loves me. It is something that I need years more exercise in. Um, But this sort of, um, the staging of the scene, the entering into the scene as a player, um, helps make it more real. Because it is real. Um, and it's my own blockages that keep me from seeing this already existing reality. I hope we all see a little clearer sometime soon. Is that a good place to wrap it up for this week? Do you think? If I may, I'd like to close with a prayer that I wrote last year for Corpus Christi um, about the side wound. O glorious wound in the side of my Jesus, open to me the holy womb of salvation. In the breast of the boundless word made incarnate, nurture my infant soul. O sweet Mother Jesus, laboring gladly on the cruel wooden cross, birth me forth with the rest of your church that we all may be one in your passion. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. 
That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.